I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Stacy Johnson. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. Coming up, can flavorful fungus make a new taste sensation? We have never been looking for a fungus that produces wild strawberry flavor. That's just what happened. And we look for wild turkeys. The turkeys could be up ahead. And we hear about turkeys that make special friends. The dog would walk behind me. The turkey would walk behind the dog. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a handbook from CU Boulder about building green. For more, here's Stacy Johnson. CU Boulder engineering professor Will Strubar is a co-author of a new report highlighting innovative building materials that actually store more CO2 than the emissions from their manufacture, making these building materials what are known as carbon sinks. The Carbon Leadership Forum is the publisher of this report. The forum is a consortium of researchers, architects, contractors, material suppliers, building owners, and policymakers who are working to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions that it takes to manufacture buildings and infrastructure. The consortium released the report in late October with research commissioned by Microsoft, which is seeking to speed up novel carbon storing solutions for everyone, plus for use within Microsoft's own buildings. According to the report, building construction accounts for more than 11% of global carbon emissions, with much of it produced during the manufacturing of building materials. The report suggests ways to reduce those emissions, including building materials that store more carbon than it takes to make them. This could transform buildings from a leading driver of carbon emissions to carbon reservoirs that can help reverse harmful emissions. The report highlights six categories of building materials with high carbon storing potential. Those six categories include earthen slabs, a new way to make concrete, structural tubes made from mushrooms and fungi, some familiar fiber materials such as bamboo, cork, and hemp, panels made from agricultural waste, and even algae-grown bricks and building panels. CU Boulder's Will Srubar says he has extra excitement for how algae will help transform buildings into carbon sinks as algae are more efficient than trees, straw, and hemp at sequestering and storing CO2. Srubar adds that the Carbon Leadership's Forum's new report can serve as a handbook for architects and engineers to know what alternatives are available in designing zero-carbon and carbon-storing buildings. For How on Earth, I'm Stacy Johnson. This Thursday is Thanksgiving, the holiday of feast. Much of what makes food delicious involves how food smells. Now there's a new way to do it, thanks to German food scientists who have made a flavorful, sustainable discovery involving the pulp of juice berries and a fungus found in pine forests. For more, here's Benita Lee. When you hear the words brown rot fungus, you probably don't think of a gourmet treat. But Wolfaporia cocos, the humble mushroom's Latin name, can produce the taste and flavor of wild strawberries from a pile of fruit pulp. 
Researchers in Gießen, Germany, just announced this discovery in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. To be honest, we have never been looking for a fungus that produces wild strawberry flavor. That's just what happened. That's Dr. Holger Zorn, professor and director of the Institute of Food Chemistry and Food Biotechnology at Eustis Liebig University. Zorn says they screened over 500 different edible mushrooms, and they did it with the best scientific detector of pleasant flavors around. It's called the human nose. We have a trained panel in my institute, and what we did, we just grew the fungi and sniffed on the plates every day to judge which flavors are pleasant. And believe me, we had many, many disappointing flavors as well. Zorn and fellow researchers go to this effort because they're trying to sniff out sustainable sources of protein and flavorings. Rather than using chemicals to create the wild strawberry flavor, Zorn's team grew the fungi on fruit waste, the pulp, skins, and seeds of European black currants that had been used for juice were the growing medium. Leftovers from industrial food processes like this are called side streams. Typically, they go to the landfill. Being able to harness a side stream to create the intense flavor of the tiny, hard-to-find strawberries is a win for the food industry and for the environment. This could be useful, for example, for flavoring of ice cream or sweets or yogurt. The fungus that produces the wild strawberry smell is not very tasty, Dr. Soren says. No, it was mainly eaten in starving times. Used in Chinese medicine for over 2,000 years, wild Wolfiporia cocos grows in the forest where it feeds off of pine tree roots. In food science, however, it has proven itself valuable for creating many different fruity and floral aromas from other waste products. A study involving carrot peels resulted in an aroma described as, quote, orange, creamy, fruity, and fresh. And one of Zorn's colleagues found that the fungus could remove the, quote, beanie off flavor from soy milk. After identifying a good smell, food scientists identify the chemicals that make up the smell using gas chromatography, a process that usually requires lots of harsh and hard-to-degrade solvents. Dr. Zorn's lab developed a more sustainable method that uses gas chromatography, but without the solvents. And the most important part of detecting which chemicals exactly make the smell? Zorn says it's a PhD student. And the student's nose. The, the carrier gas is split into two parts. One goes to the chemical detector, typically a mass spectrometer, and the other half goes to your nose. A PhD student is sitting there and just sniffing. The background is that our nose is by far the best chemical detector we have for flavor compounds. It's much more sensitive than the most sensitive chemical detector we have. Zorn says that making flavor extracts directly from a fruit can be expensive, especially when it's something hard to come by, like wild strawberries or the exotic vanilla bean. Vanilla beans are the fruit of finicky orchid plants, which must be hand-pollinated. Extreme weather events in recent years have destroyed crop yields in Madagascar, the world's main source of vanilla. Zorn says artificial vanilla smell is expensive when it's natural and cheap when it's made from chemicals. Typically, you have three categories of pricing for flavor compounds. The chemically produced compounds are typically very, very cheap, 5 to $15 per kilogram. Then you have the, the, the other end of the, the scale, the 
natural flavors directly extracted from plants, like vanillin, for example, which are extremely expensive currently. Uh, currently, the, the natural vanillin coming from a, a vanilla is somehow more expensive than gold. Somewhere in between, you have the pricing for natural flavors derived from biotechnology. They typically uh, are around 1,000 euro per kilogram or even more. Compared with bacteria and yeast, which are more common in bioflavor production, fungi are newcomers. Zorn says it's exciting to trace the chemical pathways used by the fungi and to see what familiar flavors can be discovered. And while it's not yet common on the Thanksgiving table, it may be that fungi-derived flavors and foods may soon be coming to a meal near you. For How on Earth Radio, I'm Benita Lee. Many people call Thanksgiving their favorite holiday because it's all about getting together and eating. The holiday centerpiece is often a roasted turkey that very likely comes from a domesticated flock. But did you know that Boulder County has wild turkeys? Let's listen in as How on Earth's Shelley Schlender joins naturalists Steve Jones, Scott Sievers, and Ruth Carol Cushman. They're looking for wild turkeys at Longmont's Sandstone Ranch. Come down to Sandstone Ranch out east of Longmont. We're coming down the trail. We have a regular flock of wild turkeys. I believe they have a roost tree somewhere over here on Spring Gulch. Carol, you had wild turkeys at a campsite once. Yeah, we were camping below a roost tree, so at night we watched them fly up to the roost tree, and then I sat on the tailgate of the truck in the morning at dawn watching them fly down. Oh, wait, something's happening over here. Some white-tailed deer jumping through this meadow. They'll do if we don't get turkeys. The interesting thing is that turkeys and white-tailed deer seem to associate with each other a lot, and it might be as eyes for a predator. Turkeys have the best eyes, so maybe the deer like the turkeys to help them be alerted if a large predator should come, a mountain lion or a bobcat. The turkeys could be up ahead. They could appear at any time. What we could do is go over to the eastern hills where the turkeys have been foraging on the restored grassland. That's where I've usually seen the wild turkeys. Wild turkeys were hunted to near extinction, and the numbers in the U.S. plummeted to around 20,000 during the 1930s. But after the reintroduction, they're now, uh, they're over 7 million now. Haven't seen any turkeys yet, but we could start heading back, and maybe the turkeys will run into the turkey flock. It's kind of funny. You'll be just walking along, and you won't suspect it, and you'll turn around, and the flock of turkeys might be right behind you. Here comes a deer, deer cross. running. Why are they running? And they've got their white tails up. The white-tailed deer, when they hold that tail up like that with a big banner, they're usually alerting to something. What it might be out here would be a coyote. We just came across a big pile of scat with lots of fur in it. It looks like it's twisted a little. There has been a mountain lion out here. Your dogs don't eat a lot of fur, and there's a ton of fur in this. 
I mean, I think it could be uh, just a huge coyote. It could be a very big coyote, yes. Or exactly. it could be a mountain lion. It's not twisted as much as I'd hope a mountain lion scat would be, but man, that's a big pile. Well, we didn't see any wild turkeys, but we certainly saw lots of other things. We saw deer. We saw the changing of the last remnants of fall into winter. Although we didn't see any wild turkeys, I bet they're here, and I bet they saw us. I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Last week, the world lost a great advocate for animal rights and the philosophy of consciousness. His name was Bernie Rowland. Forty years ago, Bernie Rowland joined the Colorado State University School of Vet Medicine. At CSU, the vet students told Rowland that the school saved money by having them practice surgery on a dog over and over without much pain medicine. The vet school had told the students that they did this based on a common scientific hypothesis at the time, that animals don't feel pain the way that humans do. Up next is an interview we did with Roland a while back, where he explained what happened next. Now, I'd gotten phone calls for years and years as I developed a reputation, largely from lab techs who who just were agonized and in many cases had foreshortened careers because they couldn't stand watching the animals suffer. But I had to have hard evidence. So I went to a friend who was working in the Library of Congress as a librarian. In those days, of course, we didn't have PCs. So I asked him to take their big computer and do a literature search on analgesia, pain control, for laboratory animals. And in 82, he turned up zero papers. So at that point, uh, as Sherlock Holmes says, the game was afoot. With help from animal lovers who flooded Congress with letters, Roland pushed for more research about animal emotion and pain, as well as legislation for more humane treatment of animals. But he did not oppose animal experiments or raising livestock if it included animal husbandry. You know, this husbandry thing has been called the ancient contract with animals. They benefit by our ministrations, and we benefit by their product, sometimes their lives, but when they live, they live well. In the 20th century, unfortunately, this beautiful ancient contract was broken with the rise of industrialization. Roland said that ranchers are often champions of animal husbandry, and he loved to meet up with them on their ranches. One time, we sat around chatting at breakfast, and I asked these people, how many of you have spent more on a calf than the calf was worth in either money or time, because time is money? And it was 15 out of 15, you know? What I'm referring to is when a marginal calf is born, they will bring them into the house and stay with them by the fire, you know? They'll spend money on veterinary medicine, and they will spend their sleep time caring for the animal. So one lady was there, this was in Wyoming, And she said, what's wrong with that, buster? I said, buster? I said, well, ma'am, if I were an ag economist, I would tell you that you don't spend $20 to produce a widget that you sell for 10 
And she said, she snapped at me. She said, well, that's your mistake, Buster. These aren't widgets. These are living things that we're responsible for. Those guys are the last vestiges of husbandry, and that's why I love them and I don't want to see them go under. Now let's contrast that with a story that I was told by one of my animal science colleagues. His son-in-law was a ranch kid, but the ranch could not sustain the five siblings. He was the youngest. He had to go to work in a pig factory. And one day he detected a disease in the baby pigs, called the boss and said, I got bad news and good news. The bad news is they're sick. The good news is we can treat them for a penny apiece. The boss says, no, no, you don't get it. We don't treat them. The kid says, what, you let him die of sickness? The boss says, no, picks the pig up, baby pig up by the back leg, smashes the head against the concrete abutment of the pen, throws the still-twitching body into a garbage heap. Well, the kid who was brought up as a cowboy said to himself, that's not how I was brought up, and I can't tolerate this. So he came in on the weekend, bought the medicine with his own money, came on his own time and treated the animals, and they got better. When he told the boss, the boss said, you're fired, you violated our policy. Since Bernie Rowland fought cruelty to animals, was Rowland a vegetarian? He said no. One of the first questions that I'm asked when I'm invited to a ranch community is, will you eat with us? I'll eat with them. I'll eat with them. I don't advocate for vegetarianism. What I'm after is the restoration of husbandry. And many of these cowboys have said to me, if you're a vegetarian advocate, we cannot talk to you because you're trying to put us out of business. If you're trying to help us fix what we do, you're welcome. And they've been enormously welcoming. I am a pragmatist. The percentage of vegetarians remains pretty much the same over the last century. 5%, 7% at most. So you got 93% of the population that is going to be buying pork. And my job is not to turn them into vegetarians, but to turn the production methods into something that gives the animal a decent life. Toward the end of his life, Roland wrote a memoir titled Putting the Horse Before the Cart. Roland chose that title because while the great mathematician René Descartes contributed greatly to science 700 years ago, Descartes had a dark side. Descartes is famous for affirming that animals are machines, that they had no feelings, that they had no thoughts, and thereby paved the way for people that were Cartesian, that were used Descartes' philosophy. They were doing all kinds of experimentation on animals with no anesthesia, because there wasn't any. And there are reports that one of his prominent disciples when he lectured, would bring a pregnant mastiff bitch and kick her repeatedly in the stomach to remind the kids that that was just a mechanical response, like a cuckoo clock. So I've taken Descartes as the symbol of people who deny consciousness and therefore moral concern to animals. Bernie Rowland did not consider it unethical to kill animals. What mattered to him was why and how. Do you have pets? You probably at some point, disagreeable though it is to remember, had to have an animal put to sleep. In modern veterinary medicine, it's really, an, a, a, I mean, I hate to call it nice, but it's, it's a decent process. You know, you're petting the animal, and they give it a, a, a drug that relaxes it, and then they give it an overdose of barbiturates, so the animal simply goes to sleep. 
And would that that were the case with laboratory animals. And sometimes it is, maybe with dogs, with big animals. But when you've got a 1,000 mice to euthanize, that's very labor-intensive. So unfortunately, the approved method at the moment is carbon dioxide. Now, I will ask your listeners if they think this is a decent method of death, buy some dry ice. Dry ice is frozen carbon dioxide. Put it in a paper bag and for a second stick your head in and take a breath till you'll get a (gasps) sudden gasp, this feeling of I, I gotta breathe. And I don't think that that's a decent death. Excess CO2 can cause distress because its buildup in the blood is toxic. CO2 is still in use in many slaughterhouses, but a new method is being considered a little more often, at least for poultry. It's called low atmospheric pressure stunning. Here's CSU's Bernie Rowland. We have uh, diaries from early 19th century French balloonists who went up in balloons and recorded, this is great, we're going higher. (laughs) And they went so high that they died from lack of oxygen to the brain without accumulation of carbon dioxide. We have their diaries, which recorded this was a euphoric experience. And I know at least four pilots who've been through it themselves. So we we were hoping that we could do that as a way of producing a non-unpleasant death in laboratory animals that have to be euthanized. Modern science has now documented deep animal emotions. This has helped justify more compassion in how they're treated, but it might not stop with animals. Modern science is also documenting that plants respond to threats by using chemical messages to warn each other and to fend off getting eaten. Could this be a form of thinking and caring For us humans to feel better about ourselves, should we believe that animals and plants don't have feelings? CSU vet scientist and philosopher Bernie Rowland ate meat, and he honored the emotional lives of animals. So here's a final story. It's about a turkey from Rowland's book, Putting Descartes Before the Horse. The story begins when Rowland and his wife lived in the country near Fort Collins and adopted a very fierce guard dog. His favorite game, as he bonded with my wife and myself, was to bring her a handball, looking as guileless as a 150-pound, yellow-tusked, wolf-like German Shepherd could look, and he'd offer her the ball, and she'd reach for it, he'd go, (laughs) that he thought was humor. One day, what I thought was something prehistoric came up my driveway, had a blue head that kept changing color, And I sort of was vaguely aware that it was a turkey, but I thought turkeys were little, and this thing was huge. The dog was known to pretty much go after anything that came on our property. I was worried about this turkey and uh, tackled the dog, and the fellow whose turkey it was who lived about a half a mile up the road came and got him, and a day later the turkey was back told the neighbor, he came back and said, listen, you can keep the turkey. He's obviously attracted to the situation here. The turkey and the dog became inseparable. They'd eat out of the same dish. I would take a walk. The dog would walk behind me. The turkey would walk behind the dog. Same thing when I mowed the lawn. On warm days, the dog would lie outdoors, and the turkey would lie on his back, catching the sun and the warmth of body heat. And they really were inseparable. When someone would drive up, the dog went ruff, ruff, ruff. Uh, the turkey went gobble, gobble, gobble. 
made aggressive posture. It was pretty amusing. The dog eventually developed degenerative spinal disease, which paralyzed him. I would come home from work, move him, pet him, play with him, and so forth. Was really looking for a cue to, to know when he needed to be euthanized because he was losing quality of life. During that period, my wife and I came home from grocery. It was dark. We opened the car door, and this had to be 110-pound Malamute jumped into the car. Very friendly dog, but my wife noticed, oh my God, his mouth was covered with blood and feathers. We suspected he had attacked the turkey, jumped out of the car, followed the trail of blood and feathers to the shepherd, and between the front paws of the paralyzed shepherd was the turkey huddling for safety, and the shepherd was keeping this Malamute away by growling, and it was really quite a moment uh, to see that kind of emotional bond crossing species. I wouldn't say it proved to me, but it reinforced in me the belief that Darwin held that emotions are continuous between humans and animals. So there was that big old turkey, and it had been mortally wounded, but it was still alive. And it right. had gone to its good friend, the German shepherd. Mm-hmm. Who was to... keeping the Malamute away. Bernie Roland died last week. He was 78. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Swift Maw, John Yeager, and Ethan Orland. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Benita Lee. And I'm Stacy Johnson.